Welcome to Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts in a variety of fields to uncover the systems and patterns that help us to conceptualize and reconceptualize our world. I'm Julie Stern, founder and principal facilitator for Learning That Transfers. And I'm Trevor Elio, English language arts lead for Learning That Transfers. This podcast uses our mental model as a sense-making tool through acquiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships to unlock new situations. Our guests identify three to five concepts at the heart of their field, and we discuss how those play out in a variety of settings. You can find out more about our work, including our online courses and other professional learning offerings at learningthattransfers.com. Have you ever shot off an angry email, maybe a text, and immediately regretted it? Or have you ever wondered why it's better to hash out disagreements in person instead of via email? Despite its ubiquitous nature, written communication is kind of the lifeblood of complex modern institutions. How we communicate in print can make or break an organization's culture and its productivity. So in an effort to better understand the power of the written word, this week, Julie and I dig deep into the cognitive and social neuroscience behind written communication. Guiding us on this conversational journey is author, entrepreneur, and former scientist, Rob Ashton. His course, Silent Influence, pretty much blew both our minds, so we were really eager to dive into this conversation. And continuing the conceptually speaking tradition, Rob's message manages to peel back layers of misconception in pseudoscience and really capture the true complexity of written communication. I think we, we imagine written communication is about data transfer. You, you know, we, it's about taking information from your head and putting it in someone else's head. And, and the best way to do that is to reduce it uh, to its essentials, probably a list of bullets, because that sounds efficient, doesn't it? You know, if I just put it in bullets, as you say, strip out all extraneous verbiage, job done. Uh, uh, and that completely misunderstands how we communicate, uh, you know, how, how we communicate through reading and writing. Hold on to your socially situated brains, my friends because this was a fantastic episode. Welcome to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. I'm Trevor Elio, and this week I'm joined by my co-host, Julia Briggs. Hi, everyone. And writer, former research scientist and editor, Rob Ashton. Welcome, Rob. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So we are really glad to have you. And um, as I'm sure you could tell from our flurried email exchanges, there are a lot of things that we'd like to discuss with you. Um, but for those of you um, who haven't had the pleasure of encountering your work before, um, could you kind of give us a, a quick overview of your research interests? I, uh, as you said, you know, I'm a former research scientist, former editor, and I'm fascinated by the impact that the words we read and, and write and other people read uh, has on our on our brains or has on on what we think and what we do. So you know, I've, I've spent a long, long time, um, far too long, really. You know, I was <laughs> working with um, as a as a consultant for twenty four years, working with through through my, through a consultancy I ran with people who wanted to communicate more effectively in writing. Um, and I, I suppose the, the the research scientist in me never left, uh, and I just found myself becoming more and more interested in in how words interact with our brain when we're reading them specifically um, rather than when we're hearing them particularly as uh, having been in the the consulting world there's an awful lot of um, of pseudoscience a lot of brain myths um, a lot of misunderstanding uh, around how 
how we how we read and and how those uh, how words uh, affect us. Uh, and in recent years, of course, with the the rise of fake news and uh, and the impact of that has become uh, ever more salient. So you bring up the fact that there are a lot of sort of edu myths or neuro myths out there that are really prevalent in the business world. And my wife has shared some of the things that um, has been uh, produced or shared with her. And she works for like a really big consulting company. And I'm, I'm always kind of shocked that those myths are so deeply ingrained um, just in the way that communication is conceptualized in professional spaces. And, and these are people with money and access like you wouldn't believe. So what, what is it do you think that makes the truth behind or the science behind as we currently understand it, communication, um, why hasn't that become the, the sort of main understanding? Why do you think that all of these myths persist? Well, I think when it comes to communication um, specifically, uh, it's, you know, it's seen as a soft skill in the commercial world for which read something that's optional, something you can just do. Um, and it's, it's invisible. I mean, particularly when it comes to, to writing, um, it's something that we just don't notice. Reading is something that we learn to do as, as, as infants. Um, and we probably don't think very much about how we do it. Um, once we get, once we get beyond that stage. Uh, and in fact, reading is seen as, as almost, um, an elementary skill. Uh, I remember speaking to a consultant a couple of years ago, um, or rather, it was, it was speaking to several consultants, consultants and uh, someone was asking for help with written communication. And someone else said, oh, yes, you know, we, we use this company or we, we refer them to that book um, for help with the basics. And it was that it was that mm. phrase, the basics. You know, it's seen as something that is um, elementary and that if you need help with it, you, you know, it's your you know, it's seen as remedial help. It's not something if you're if you're a professional and you need help with written communication, um, then there must be something lacking in your education. Um, uh, and I mean, you know, reading itself is, and we can go into this. You know, reading is a is a miracle of adaptation. Really, it's yeah. it's incredibly complex, uh, and, but we just don't realize how complex it is. One one of the things I kind of was struck by listening to to your course and and thinking about what you do is is how much I think the written word is superior to the spoken word and how mm. I think okay if I really want to get my point across I need to sit down and write it in an email and and that's how I think I need to get my point across and how I need to maybe calm down a, a stressful situation between a colleague or or um, a friend, and you kind of flipped that around for me, and, and it was no, maybe you need to pick up the phone, or maybe you need to actually see someone face to face. And it's amazing how that can be so strong in my mind. I'm, I, I have a, a science background myself, not a research background, but I I know how evolution works, and I understand how um, young written work written. Um, communication is versus spoken and how like, evolutionary speaking of course our brains are primed for for speaking and for listening so I, it's kind of I shocked myself I thought oh yeah of course why why would I go to writing over over speaking I thought that was a really interesting kind of thing that you're trying to convey 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, I can I can see why why you and and and, uh, and most people would would take that approach and say, okay, I need to get my points across. I need to be very clear. I need to be very um, intentional and specific about what I'm trying to say. Uh, and writing does give you a way to do that because you're you're con- you're in control, aren't you? you? You know, you can read it, you can reread it before you send it. Um, Though you don't always, one doesn't always see what's there, of course, you, you know, which mm-hmm. is why we can send things and only after we've sent them do we see, you know, mistakes that we've made. But um, it's, I think that the problem is that any kind of mediated communication is reduces the, the fidelity of the message, if you like. So um, uh, social psychologists call, um, you know, phone calls, email, text, whatever. It's all mediated communication. It's all using a medium, um, uh, an intermediary, if you like. Um, And every time you do that, you lose some of the message. So if you are typing, if you you are are writing, tapping away on your screen, on your smartphone screen, for example, um, not everything is going to come across. And in fact, it's not just tone. I mean, if you think, you mentioned evolution there, writing itself is as i said it's incredibly complex but it's it's something we take it for granted but if you think about it you are seeing dots and squiggles on a screen and you are hearing a voice in your head uh, and that is probably one of the most complex things our brains do um and and it's it's means that it can go wrong very easily and it also means that our brains are working quite hard when they are reading. So mm-hmm. if you're reading a message, you're not, I mean, for a start, your, your brain, you know, may well be on overdrive. Yeah, it may be a, a slight exaggeration, but it's certainly working hard already, um, possibly approaching its limits. Uh, and that um, may well leave less cognitive energy, if you like, for, for self-control. So, so you know, you tend to get, triggered more easily on you know when you're reading something than when you're hearing something um there's some research uh, i think it's about 10 years ago um that seemed to show uh, i've not seen it repeated uh, elsewhere but it seemed to show that the, that the hormone oxytocin um is is only released when we are uh, when we are hearing a voice and not when we are reading so there was, it was an experiment done with, with children, with, with girls and their mothers. Um, and the, the, the experimenters um, put the girls in a, in a stressful situation, not, not too stressful. They asked them to complete a maths, a maths puzzle in, in public, which actually probably is quite stressful. Oh, stressed me out really bad. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And they were just, I remember blood pressure is rising as they describe it actually. But I mean, they, um, they found that, the um the girls that when the girls were reassured by their mothers by by um telephone uh they the the, um their oxytocin levels uh went up um but when they were uh, reassured by using more or less the same words but through uh through a text message um there was no effect on on the oxytocin levels so you know that seems to be suggesting that uh, again the human voice is it, triggering a, a, a whole reaction that's enabling us to communicate more effectively. Now, oxytocin has been called the probably probably misnamed the cuddle hormone, but it's certainly 
central to how we interact socially. And it looks like that might be missing um, when you're writing. Um, but uh, uh, the other thing is that actually we don't see what's there. So we, we see what we expect to see. Uh, that there's, I mean, this is a, a huge area. And I, you know, I don't know how much you, how you want to go into it, but th there's been this, this move in neuroscience over the last 10 years to, to, um, to the idea of something called predictive coding. So, so we, the idea is that we predicting what we're going to see. So we are, it, it's all about expectation. And in fact, if you go back to the uh, mid 1800s, there was a, a German uh, physicist and, and uh, medical doctor called Hermann von Helmholtz. Uh, he invented the ophthalmoscope, you know, that kind of flashlight magnifying glass thing that doctors use when they look in your eye. And he, he said, look, the, the eye, if you look at the, if you look at the retina, if you look at, um, at the light receptors in the retina, the shape of the eye, the eye cannot take in enough information to, uh, to account for vision and our, our, our view of the world. And this was almost forgotten afterwards. And it was picked up again in the mid nineties and neuroscientists started looking at it and saying, well, actually, no, that, you know, let's investigate this. And they found that there are two things going on when we see anything. There's what we expect and there's correcting it. So and when it comes to reading, we are, we are doing just that. It, you know, we are, we are expecting things. We're reading along a line and we're predicting what's coming next. Mm -hmm. um, there's even, you know, there, there's a, in um, uh, cognitive linguistics, there's, there's uh, a concept called um, the garden path model, the idea of being led down the garden path. And it's, you know, it says that we, when we're reading a sentence, we are, we're, we're trying to predict the direction in which it's going to go. So, you know, I could say, for instance, uh, Trev Trevor took a, took a bicycle pump down from the shelf and inflated the carrot. Now, up until that word carrot, you're thinking that sentence mm. is going to go in a completely different direction. Uh, and that's because you are processing those words in sequence. Now, if you imagine you're doing that when you're reading, um, then you know that's a lot of work, and you're you're accessing the sounds of the of uh, of the words, the um, your your own database of um, of words. You're, you're kind of in a dictionary. There's a huge amount going on. And and I'd imagine that you know layered into that sort of cognitive quandary is the fact that there are are patterns of communication and culture throughout an organization or throughout one-to-one -one relationships within that organization, where the predictive, you know, word or message that you are expecting is also shaped by previous interactions, you know, with that person that you've had. Totally, totally. And, and you see this in, you know, in text messaging as well, you, you know, you're reading it, you're, you know, what am I seeing? Um, you know, what's, what are they about to say? Uh, and then you hopefully correct it. But I think so often we don't correct it. We read what we want, what we yeah. want to see or what we're expecting to see. Um, and, yeah, we skim things. You know, we're, we're, we're all time poor, aren't we? You know, um, so, yeah, you, you know, there will be, you know, politics with a small P comes into that, you know, office mm -hmm. politics, um, you know, your relationships with your with your coworkers, um, good or bad um emotive issues so you know and, and this um this is somewhere else where you know you shouldn't really rely 
on written communication for discussing emotive issues because you are you're setting yourself up to, to fail. You're you're lacking that. Um, you know, if, if oxytocin is at play, then you know it looks like that's not being being re, uh, released. If you're so you're lacking that kind of social lubricant, if you like. Um, but also, you are making the brain work very hard. You know, and I mentioned mm-hmm. this this lack of emotional control. Um, so yeah, you, you do see it in uh, uh, um, this this um, problem really kind of spreading throughout organisations. and I think what's what's surprised me for a long time is if you look at, for instance, um, cultural change and people who try to change those cultures, they almost never look at written communication. You know that they will. Um, you know, they'll say, okay, so what's the, you know, are you having meetings? How do you, um, you know, how often do you interact with people? What are our values here? Here are our new values. We need you to adopt them. Um, but uh, I, I spoke to somebody who um, had uh, spent a, a million pounds. Uh, it was a, a very old company in, in London, one of the oldest, um, to, uh, on cultural change consultants. And I said to her, um, that's really interesting. What are you doing about email? And she said, oh, yeah, that probably does have an effect. Oh, well, email is just email, isn't it? So, and, and this, is, I think, is the problem. It's just, you know, we just ignore it. We've become reliant on this, on this medium for which, um, you know, we're not, evolution hasn't, hasn't equipped us. Uh, when you learn to read, you are wiring together parts of your brain and co-opting parts of your brain that you evolved for other purposes. Um, and it's a very, very complex process. But I think also when it comes to cultures, um, that does affect how people communicate as well. So it, it affects what medium people use. The uh, instant messaging uh, services like Slack, of, of you, know, be, you know, we see those used um, much more widely uh, in, in recent years. Um, Slack use went up in 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 the uh, twenty twenty. Uh, mm-hmm. Zoom got the you know got the, the the headlines if you like, but we actually spent less time in meetings on Zoom in twenty twenty. Uh, we had more meetings, um, but the meetings were shorter. And what were people doing in between those meetings? You know, they were communicating, but they were communicating through the written word, um, and, and we just don't we just don't notice it. Um, the other thing with cultures is that we absorb it, we absorb the style of not just the medium but the style uh, of the culture. So we'll start to change the language that we use, um, and partly because we want to fit in, and there's a very deep-seated um, evolutionary drive to 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 comply with the, with the norm. No one wants to be an outsider. It's the sort of thing that could have. Uh, you know, being being curtains for us. Um, you know, back when we might have been ostracised for being different, um, but it's. It, but we also get used to the way people communicate, and we become inured to its faults, and we start to we start to like it. Uh, another um, psychology um, staple is the is the mere exposure effect or familiarity bias that we we grow to like things that we see a lot. Um, you know, politicians know this. That's why they repeat messages. You know, if you repeat things often, repeat an untruth often enough, then people will believe it. Um, it's also why you know 
people, you know, when we're all working in offices, you know, people would often fall in love with co-workers, you know, become attracted to them. And it's because they see them every day. And, and that makes sense. You know, if you go back to when we lived in tiny villages, you know, it would be, we probably wouldn't have lasted very long if we'd had to, to have walked, you know, 30 miles to the next village before we could find a mate, you know, so it makes sense <laughs> that, you know, right. But, but, you know, it, it applies to writing too. If we, it, you know, if everybody around you is using, is using, um, you know, way too many words, sentences that are way more complex than they need to be, then that, you know, to begin with, um, you'll have that kind of fresh um, view of those things and it will seem strange, but before, too long um you will then start to get used to it and then you'll start to like it and then it becomes very difficult to change and change to a way that's actually communicating more effectively apart from the fact that that's not how we do it around here and and i feel like it's it's interesting that there's so much tension between our cognition and our sort of evolutionary biology and uh sort of some of the cultural ideas that we have like very deeply ingrained like i think the, the need or desire to send written communication, as you were saying, Julia, when you're dealing with something that is highly emotive or stressful is because we assume, oh no, strip the emotion from the message and words are very good. You know, we live in a very like logocentric, rational Cartesian split culture where it's like, you know, the, it's the, the reduction and removal of emotions that will ensure my message is communicated clearly. But, you know, because of that paltry understanding of the way that emotions interact with our cognition, what we end up doing is based on, on your work. And this is like the, the most clear that I've come to understand why some of those issues create these problems, because we assume that the medium that we're using to send our message is helping us in removing our emotion, but really it's that lack of emotion. Um, and then, you know, our tendency to predict or to see certain patterns that may not be there messages, they might not be there that leads to stress, anxiety, conflict that exacerbate, you know, the very thing that we think, sending an email will do. So I, I thought that that was an interesting tension that we have so many deeply held cultural ideas about the written word, um, even, you know, before Slack or email um, that, that are, are, I think, contributing to this and are, are now worsened by it due to technology. Uh, I, I agree. You know, it's, um, it's not a new problem. Um, it's been made worse by, as you say, by, by, by technology. Um, but I think we have a... Um, you know, going back to your your question at the beginning um, about the proliferation of of pseudoscience and, and and brain myths, I think we we imagine written communication is about data transfer. Mm. You, you know, we it's about taking information from your head and putting it in someone else's head, and and the best way to do that is to reduce it uh, to its essentials. Um, probably a list of bullets because that sounds efficient, doesn't it? You know, if I just put it in bullets, um, as you say, strip out all extraneous verbiage, um, job done. Uh, uh, and that completely misunderstands how we communicate, uh, you know, how, how we communicate through reading and writing. Um, we, uh, th there was a, 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 um, a piece, a blog post um, on the HBR blog that went, um, well, we would have said went viral. That blew up. You'd say now, um, probably we can't say go viral after after COVID. But um, it, it's um, it, it, it's it, the it was about writing. I think it was called something like you know how to write like the military, um, uh, and this was extremely popular. And it was recommending things like um, having a uh, a subject line that that was very. Well, so there were, there were various categories of subject line. They were all in capitals. 
Um, and it would be things like action for something that needed doing, um, info for something that you didn't need to respond to, but you might need to know. Uh, it got a little bit surreal. There was one called Coord, which is for coordinating. Um, and then a title. And then there would be the, the bottom line up front, which is, which is a very military thing. You, you know, that's, um, that, that is, um, you know, in, in the, in most, certainly in the U S and, and UK military cultures, you know, give bluff bottom line up front, give, give me the, give, give me the, the, what I really need to know. Um, and, and then you, and then there'll be a list of bullets with some details and it's a terrible way to communicate. It, it was, it was so popular, but it was shared all over the internet and people were saying, oh yeah, you know, that's, yeah, that, that's brilliant. I'm going to do that. You know, so that sounds really good. And I think it's because we, we, it's kind of, it spoke to how we would like to think we read and write rather than how we do. Uh, and, you know, the bottom line up front could be something like um, all leave is canceled um, next, next week, it, you know, and it's kind of, so that's the first thing you get, or, or it could, you know, it could be, um, I'm not going to be uh, going forward with your proposal, uh, you know, and this is kind of like a punch in the face with, with some of these emotive issues. Uh, and I don't think you'll get as far as the ex explanation, because if you think about predicting and how people are expecting things, mm -hmm. you've upset them at the beginning. Uh, and, um, and even if you don't upset them, you've given them no context. You're not um, kind of leading them in. You're not, you're not making use of that, of that way that we understand sentences um, and also just using bullets, which is, you know, it's not just in, in that blog post, but people use bullets a lot. Um, when you use bullets, again, you're stripping out um, all explanation or a lot of explanation, but what you're also stripping out usually is narrative. You're mm -hmm. stripping out the story and we understand things through story. Uh, uh, I mean, this is particularly um uh, an issue it's a particular issue if you're trying to persuade someone to do something so if you're writing a proposal um it, it, because if you just give somebody bullets you are leaving them to construct their own narrative so you're lose you're, you're at huge risk of losing control of the argument right from the start you know it's much better to lead people through a process um usually you know by by telling them something that they are going to agree with to begin with. And it could be, you know, we, we all want to do whatever, you know, we, we, our priority is this. Um, and you get them nodding and then you put them in a, in a good place to receive what you are about to say. But you certainly need to, to, to use a narrative uh, and, um, or rather build, build a narrative and give that to people rather than leaving them to construct one. I know that Trevor, you're the <laughs> more expert person on on storytelling and and literature. But one one thing that we um, as a team are so focused on is this storytelling element. And for education, I I mean I've been an educator for about twelve years, and what I've noticed is that there's this kind of stripping away of that context from curriculum. And the impact on that is that our young people just can't make sense of the learning. So, so what we try to do is bring that back in. We talk about the story of the course because it's, it's vital. Like the, the, our students are partners in the learning journey. And so if we want to bring them on, on that, and of course we as the experts 
in the field can see how everything's connected, but the novice can't. And so telling the story and having some kind of control over that narrative is so important. Otherwise, like you said, it's up to the learner or the student or the colleague who's receiving those bullet points or those standards um, to learn to make up their own story. And we see the impact on that. There's so, so, um, so much negative impact on students' outcomes in education. And this is one of the, the key parts of that storytelling and understanding how everything fits together. Um, and I thought that was a really beautiful point that you're, you're trying to convey. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, of course, the, the thing is, it's not just that the story that, that you have to um, tell the story, but that they will already have a story in their heads. Mm. You know, they will have their own story. You know, we have this this kind of inner monologue. Um, you know, that, that and it's it, there's it's like a like the soundtrack to our lives. You know, we're walking around and we're explaining everything to ourselves. We're processing the information in stories you know um, you know we're saying oh you know i'm i'm, I'm going into to, to see what's for dinner now and oh it's oh, look it's a nice day and you've kind of got all these you know this 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 is all going on in your in your head it's just it's just what happens in the case of the students there could be a very different story it could be i'm very stressed about this work or you know i've got uh, uh i don't think i'm going to pass my pass my exams you know it's um, or I don't like English or whatever it is. And there's this, and they're thinking about that. Um, and story is a very, very good way of, uh, uh, of replacing those negative thoughts with something more constructive. Um, there was um, a really good uh, study by um, uh, the neuroscientist uh, Yuri Hassan at Princeton, um, where uh, he, he and his team used um, a brain scanner, a functional, uh, an fMRI, which, which measures um, blood flow in the brain uh, in real time. Okay, so you can, you can watch, gives you an indication of, of what might be going on. Um, and uh, in the experiment, um, they, they got um, volunteers to read a story. It, it, was, it, it was an extract from, I think they were describing a scene from Sherlock, the, the BBC TV series. They were describing this scene. Um, and while they were describing it, um, the researchers recorded their description and also recorded the, the brain scan, you know, so what, what was happening in their brain. Um, and then they played back that recording or those recordings to other volunteers um, who hadn't watched Sherlock um, had never seen it, didn't know what was going on. And, and while they were listening to that recording of that description, they measured their brain scan, their, their brain activity as well. And it was the same areas that lit up. So the brains synchronized. So it's, so when you are telling a story, um, not only does it help you get your, your point across now, you, you know, you're constructing a narrative, but you're, it gives you a chance to synchronize your brain with the person um, who's reading what you what you've written um, or, or you know it, it applies of course to uh, spoken communication as well um, so yeah it's extremely powerful and um, I'm not you know I'm not a great one for, for the over application of neuroscience um, but I think that there are you know the the advances we've made in in recent years are producing some really interesting um, uh, it's throwing a light on, on some very interesting um, concepts and 
and think you know just just starting to to show how we the things we, that we've in, that we've known for a while seem to work it's providing yet more more evidence of why they might be working i have that conversation with sorry with julie all the time i'll i'll text her and i'll say Judy, you've been doing this for years and years and years, and now here's some neuroscience that confirms why it's so powerful and why it works, and and it happens all the time. And particularly, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you see psychology, you, you know, things that psychologists have been saying for a very long time, and neuroscientists will be saying, "Oh, well, look, this is what seems to be go- going on." I mean, I, I mentioned about the expectation. Um, psychologists have been talking about top-down processing for a long time, you know, uh, and um, th- th- which is expectation. Um, but there is this added element now um, where, um, th- which, which is about reducing uncertainty and, and checking to see if your expectation was correct. Um, although again, you know, that social psychology, uh, you know, one of it's a, another, um, model in or theory in social psychology is that we we look to reduce uncertainty whether that's uh, you know when we meet somebody else when they when they're communicating with us we're trying to see if we're trying to reduce our own, own uncertainty but we're trying to see if we can believe what they're saying um and of course that you know that comes into all written communication as, as much as anything and probably a lot more for the reasons i mentioned because it's a lot harder well, I, I think the fascinating thing is the way that neuroscience is interfacing with, as you were saying, uh, innovations and ideas and theories from other fields. I mean, you know, critiques of the limitations of language have been around, you know, since you know, post-structuralist Wittgenstein and um, Derrida looking at, you know, how what we say isn't always received in the same way that we, we meant to convey it. Um, and, you know, the idea of story, you know, story for a long time, you know, very much was housed within the humanities, but now we're seeing all of these, you know, cognitive and neuro, um, uh, sort of like neuroscientific applications of story too. And I think that that sort of um, I don't know, union of those things, or we, those things aren't separated from each other anymore, that that's incredibly powerful. Um, I know that um, Antonio Damasio has done a lot of work looking at how, you know, our emotions and our cognition is, you know, intimately intertwined, but for so long, all of these things were seen as so separate from one another. And I think that probably also contributes to the point that you opened the pod with, which is, you know, communication is seen uh, in very narrow terms and it's as sort of like a, a very basic thing that we can just do. And there, there's so much nuance in there that, um, you know, due to living in a very like, you know, rational technical society, now that science is legitimizing it, I think it's entering into the mainstream more because people are like, oh, well, you know, it's supported by science. So um, it has more legitimacy that maybe they would, wouldn't have been as open to when it just was, you know, within the humanities and social sciences. Yeah, I, I think um, it's, when you, when you look at written communication, you can apply principles from psychology. Um, that haven't that we haven't tended to um to apply to, to written communication so things like information you know cognitive overload uh you know how much can we really take in um when 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 you're explaining a new concept to somebody you you are you're having to use your short-term memory or your working memories it's sometimes called and this is very very easy to overload because you have no reference points you have no long-term memory of it um, and uh, I, I think I, I, I may have even mentioned this example on the, on the um, 
on the silent influence course but but yeah it's you kind, did <laughs> you know, it, yeah it's you know you are there I was attending a, a, a lecture an evening lecture on um quantum computing uh, and I was I was just over I was really really trying to concentrate I really wanted to know about this um it was I was there with my son he was into computer science and it's like well, okay this this sounds interesting we've got somebody here who's going to talk for an hour on quantum computing and he knows all about it he's a specialist in it he's a researcher so um you know this is going to be good um and I was about five minutes in when I just thought okay you know because he was stacking information he was introducing one concept that was unfamiliar then another one then another one and I was trying to hold all of those in my working memory uh, and I remember kind of jolting myself and saying yeah, come on Rob you can do this <laughs> you know just kind of wake <laughs> yourself up you know it's kind of let, let's let's go and then no it would get overloaded again and it's because it's all relying on the working memory when something is un, is unfamiliar that's how we take in information um so yeah you've got that but you know you mentioned emotions uh, and uh that's it's been known for a long time that emotions have a a very real effect on our decision making um and yet we don't apply them to writing so we kind of think okay yeah. if i just use this bottom line up front approach um yeah sure it might upset them a little bit but you know at least i've been up front and i've given them you know i've given them the information and uh, and and i'm transferring the data from my head to their head um and and just completely ignoring the emotional element uh, and and most likely the emotional fallout from that um whereas in that situation probably really want to be picking up the phone or going to see them um and at least then you have a chance of of managing that um you know if if somebody if you overload if if you produce an emotional response and there are you know this can be simply a, a you know a word thing if you use certain words you know certain words that kind of have a um a, a bigger emotional a greater emotional reaction than than others um then you are going to be be triggering emotions in in the recipient and that's going to affect you know that could make them angry if it make when and then you know psychologists know that when we're angry we tend to um overestimate our our um or underestimate the consequences of what we're about to do and mm. overestimate our ability to deal with it and so that's not neuroscience you know that's that's cognitive psychology so yeah that they are all coming together but we don't seem to apply them when it comes to uh to what we're writing well one one thing that's swelling around my head is is our our prerogative around transfer and how how we help um teachers teach students how to transfer their knowledge from one context to an, another and to unlock it and when you were talking about like our inability to really perceive what reality is is showing us and the limitations of our um eyes and our brains and how we fill in the gaps and and how do we go deeper than the superficial levels of of new context whether it's um I don't know algebra one or computer science, whatever whatever's new, um, and how do we reconcile that cognitive overload? And and I was looking at the concepts that you shared, and you had the words that were jumping out to me were things like reliance, obviously cognitive overload, misunderstanding, misinterpretation, um, and that's one of the things that we're really obsessed with. Really, <laughs> we we want to yeah. we want to help. Our young people look at a new situation 
and dig deeper and understand, well, what, what do I know about this? How do I think about it deeply so that I can solve these really big problems like the, the things we're facing now, huge problems with pollution, with political polarization, with climate change, all these things are really, really difficult. So it seems like we kind of have to overcome the limitations um, of our brains, of our way of communicating. And we need to be aware of how written um, communication plays into that as educators, as young people. Absolutely. It's, um, and of course, it's not just in the, in the transfer of knowledge, is it? It's how you communicate with students. Um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of that is, is done through, uh, through the written word now. Um, you know, I've, I've seen this in, you know, in my own home with my own kids, you know, and it's can, it can go, it can go wrong. Um, and you can imagine, you know, a, a teacher who is, you know, maybe needs to get a point across, uh, maybe, you know, a point that, that they've been trying to get across in the classroom where they've been telling people about for ages and, and it's not getting through. Um, and that you can see how they might react, you know, sort of don't email me this, you know, I, I need that. Um, and, and so you can just, you know, I've seen where somebody sent an email three or four times and it was kind of a series of, of, uh, of emails, you know, and um, it kind of ever met more desperate, but they were sent at kind of like 10 minute intervals. So this person was obviously, <laughs> you know, going through things and in real time getting more and more angry and then going straight to, um, to their keyboard uh, and, and typing out a message to the students in an effort, quite understandably, to fix it and stop them doing it. Um, but it's, it, it probably was going to backfire um and it's but we we live in our screens and we kind of become it's it's of course it's you know it's not just teachers who do that everybody does it you know we're we're sucked into our screen and we lose this perspective and it's like we're thinking that, that our screens become an extension of our own brain but we forget the recipient's brain um in, in the in the process yeah it's um my colleagues and i would joke that you could always expect an email around 3 to 4 p.m when a student goes home and shares something that they're unhappy about, we call them the red wine emails where, you know, <laughs> there, there's some issue that the student shares with their parents about class that day. And, you know, a, a frustrated email is sent, but then as soon as the phone call happens, well, oftentimes, um, you know, the, the problem sort of dissipates because of that, that, that issue. So um, kind of relatedly, one of the things I'm, that I'm curious about um, is maybe like a kind of a final question is what do you see as some of the, the best ways that we can, um, account for the limitations of our written communication and lean into the affordances. What, what would you recommend to teachers, to professionals, to people um, generally that you think are the biggest bang for their buck in terms of using the written word in ways that is um, conducive to how it operates? Well, it's a huge question right for the end. I, I'm, I'm almost <laughs> we, can, we can push a little bit. We can keep going. <laughs> well, I'm almost loath to... Um... I don't want to recommend or, or give some easy answers. You know, I, I, it's, you know, rule number one, do no harm. I, I, I'd be worried about <laughs> making the situation worse. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think, um, I think awareness is, is the key. Um, I think the first thing you, you should do is just be aware of how we are not, uh, how reading is not a natural process. Um, Marianne Wolf wrote, um, Proust and the Squid. She's a so good. professor of childhood development. You know, she calls this, she calls um, reading 
so there's nothing natural about reading you know it's one of the most unnatural things you can do and yet you know we need to remember that that when when you are writing something you are already at a disadvantage and then you know try to avoid using uh, using the written word for for emotive topics if you can speak to the person speak to the student uh, speak to the student uh, parents caregivers and you know that's that's probably going to make things a lot easier as, as you said and and try to be aware of your state of mind you know it's a bit like um you know don't don't send texts when you're drunk you know it's kind of you know with, with, with in this in this case you know i would say you know make sure you're not under the influence of anger you know if you are angry then you, you shouldn't be sending you know just stop just just put your phone down switch switch it off you know walk away from your computer and that takes a that takes a huge um presence of mind you know it's very very difficult but you know because of that problem as i said of where it sucks you in but just really really be aware that that what you are doing um is you know may not have the the um the, the effect the outcome that, that you're hoping for i, I think the, the one final thing that we haven't touched on but it's it's important here is that there is a story going on in your head and, and the person receiving what you've written won't have that story you know, so it's almost like a backing track. Um, uh, uh, another study called, called tap, Tappers and Listeners, where, where the researchers just tapped away just uh, at common, commonly known tunes, you know, like Happy Birthday and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and the researchers asked the, 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 the tappers, the people who are just tapping away this tune, and it's just, you know, on a, on a desk, you know, whatever. Um, how likely is it that's, that the person hearing that, hearing that tapping will be able to identify the tune? Um, and the tappers vastly overestimated how easy that was going to be for the recipient. When you are writing something, you know the tone, you know how you mean it, you've got that backing track in your head, um, and the recipient won't have that. So, But to remember all of that, you really need this mindfulness and this, this really focus on just Okay, right. I'm just gonna let's just take five. Well, actually, don't take five. Take take half an hour. Be, you know, you're gonna need at least twenty minutes to calm down, and and then come back to it. But then, even then, think: Would I be better off just uh, making this a phone call, a meeting, or or you know, a Zoom session? It'd make a great app. Are you angry right now? <laughs> if so, wait thirty minutes. <laughs> well, I wasn't until you sent me. I got this notification. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Do you have any uh, closing questions, Julia? No, I just, I think it's been such a, um illuminating conversation. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I love what you were saying at the end. It made me think of like the compassion and empathy in communication. And, and for us as educators, I mean, it, learning is a social practice. And so when you fall back on just written communication, you lose a lot of that. And that ties into something we haven't really touched on, but the feedback that we give to our young people and how we're trying to be more efficient with that when actually a conversation is probably the primary thing we want to do. Unfortunately, I think efficiency, yeah, efficiency is the trap. You know, that's yeah. where, and of course we need to yeah. be efficient. I can, you know, I get it, but often it's not as efficient as we think it, think it is. 
Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it intersects with um, some research that I'm doing right now um, on multimodality and, and social semiotics and, and all the other affordances and limitations of other modes of communication. And there's just, there are not enough people talking about the importance and complexity of communication. And I, I sincerely appreciated, um, you know, the work that you did in the course, this conversation, um, you shining a light on it, because considering, you know, as you said, the increasing amount, and we didn't get to talk much about technology, um, unfortunately, the increasing amount of technological written communication we're engaging in, we need to be aware of these things. It, it can make a massive difference in personal relationships, in the success or failure of a business, of education. So thank you so much. And um, if people uh, want to learn more, um, and I'm assuming that after this conversation, they would, where would they go? <laughs> uh, so just go to, um, we, we touched on a, a free course that I've created. It's called Silent Influence. And it, it covers um, a lot of the concepts, a lot of the science we've been talking about today. Um, and I'm adding to it as well. So I'm adding to it every few weeks um, as I research this topic. Um, so if people want to want to get that, so just go to uh, robashton.com slash concept, robashton.com slash concept. Um, that will take them to a, to a sign up page. Uh, and just to say, you know, a lot of these things seem like marketing funnels, you know, it's a, it's totally free. I just want to get this, uh, this idea out there because I just don't think people are talking about it enough. Well, thank you so much. And we sincerely appreciate the dialogue. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us to understand our world. If you like this podcast, please like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform and join our community by visiting learningthattransfers.com.